is using your notes. Sheikh Shadid told us, uh, Sheikh Shadid, I sent you an invite to the stage too. So um, we all loves writing. He's in love with his pen, mashallah. And so because of this, we should also too be in love with our pens uh, as well too. Meaning that if you have your iPad notes, you can write on that. But if you have a pen, and a little piece of paper, you can write on that as well too. But if, you, if you're if you too lazy, then this is not that big of a deal. Or if you prefer to use your iPhone notes, that's fine. The replay of the room is on. So for your brothers and sisters um, that was not in here, they'll have the replay, inshallah. Sheikh Shadid, you know it's always a pleasure, Habibi. You already know how I feel about you. And uh, the floor is yours. Tafadda mashkuran, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Jazakallah khair, Sheikh Hanif, for the invite. And uh, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reward everyone that's listening, everyone that joined. Uh, hopefully, inshallah ta'ala, we'll have a very interesting discussion. Uh, I'm going to put my headphones in just to see, uh, make sure that it, uh, there's no uh, background noise, inshallah. Sheikh Hanif, can you hear me? Okay, does that sound better? Okay, okay, great. Okay, Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, wa salatu wa salam, ala ashrafil anbiya'i wal mursaleen, wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'een. Rabbana atina fi dunya hasana, wa fi al-akhirati hasana, wa qina adab al-nar. O oh Allah, we ask you for the good of this life and the good of the hereafter and to save us from the hellfire. So uh, in continuing with our discussion on self-love, um, as I said to you know those who attended the last time, you know, self-love is a very broad topic. Um, and we could, I mean, we could continue talking about this, you know, for you know, for a long time. Uh, there are so many different angles and avenues and so many different layers to self-love. So our discussion tonight, I'm going to lead with a quote, and then I'll just kind of elaborate. I'll build off of that quote uh, as we go into the discussion. The quote reads, respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or makes you happy. And I want to remove the last part where it says makes you happy because nothing or no one can make you happy. So I'll say respect yourself enough to walk away from from anything that no longer serves you, grows you, or contributes to your happiness. All right, because nobody can make you happy. Um, so that is that is pretty much self-love that is an aspect of self-love is respecting yourself enough to know 
when you have to walk away from something or someone that is no longer serving you. As human beings, we are creatures of habit. That, that's, that's our nature. We, we are creatures of habit. We love what is familiar. We love what is safe. Sometimes, even when it is unhealthy or toxic and no longer serves us. And what do I mean when I say something that no longer serves you? Because that might seem like a, a narcissistic personality trait. That might seem like a very, you know, arrogant statement to make that, you know, or very um, selfish comment to make that this no longer serves me. But what I mean when I say something that no longer serves you is that it is something that is no longer productive to our personal growth and evolution. That's what I mean when I say serve me, because anything and anyone that is in your life right now should contribute to or should be productive towards your personal growth and your evolution as a human being. We evolve into better versions of ourselves so that we can better serve the people we share our spaces with. Not to exalt ourselves over other people because they didn't take the time out to evolve, but self-evolution is about better serving the people that are around you. So it's a, it's a, it's a cycle. You know, um, we position ourselves to evolve in a healthy way, to get to a better version of ourselves so that we can better serve the people that are around us. And so that the people that are around us have a healthy experience with us and we continue to grow together. So that is the pretty much the cycle. All right. So sometimes the things that no longer serve us, um, they are broken into different categories. But sometimes the things that no longer serve us are beliefs. Concepts that we've um, held throughout our lives. And I'll just I'll mention a few, right, a few of, you know, some very popular beliefs or philosophies um, that should no longer serve us at this particular point in our lives. So some of the things that no longer serve us are beliefs, philosophies, ideologies that that we held that tended to be or tend to be emotionally, mentally, and spiritually debilitating, i.e. toxic, right? Toxic beliefs. And I think that we've all, you know, held those or still hold some of those at this particular point in our lives. So I want to, I just want to look at some of the, you know, toxic thoughts and beliefs that, and when I say beliefs here, I'm not talking about akaid, I'm not talking about akid, I'm not talking about spiritually, you know, um, beliefs that are extracted from the Quran and the Sunnah. I'm talking about beliefs that we've held throughout our lives, either because of the cultural environments that we were raised in, or because of ideologies and beliefs that were given to us about ourselves, about the world, from our parents, from our friends, our peers. These are the type of beliefs that I'm talking about. And some of those beliefs have been, you know, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually debilitating, such as doing the same things over and over again, expecting a different result. That is a belief that I'm just going to do this over again, even though you see that you're not getting a different result from this. Um, another spiritually, mentally, emotionally debilitating belief is that 
I'm going to engage people with the same with the expectation that they will reciprocate to me the same behavior that I give to them. That is a, an emotionally debilitating belief. Because people are not going. So essentially what you're looking for is yourself in other people. That within itself is a narcissistic personality trait that I'm looking for myself in other people. So I am going to engage people with the expectation that they should engage me or they should, you know, extend to me the same type of energy that I extend to them. And that's that that's not reality. <laughs> that's not reality. You are you and, and that's it. Um, so engaging people with the expectation that they will reciprocate to you what you put out. Um, Another spiritually, emotionally, and mentally debilitating belief that many of us may have held in the past or possibly still hold today is thinking that if you play small, that it will make others feel more comfortable with you. Some of us, we believe that if, you know, I play myself small, then I, I'll make others comfortable with me. We don't like to make others uncomfortable, right? Um, and, you know, even me, myself, uh, I I was in the past, you know, guilty of that. And that was, you know, I may like a certain I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, maybe a couple years ago, um, myself, um, I went to a store to go buy a jacket. My wife was with me and there was a particular the, the, the leather coat was red. Um, and I really, really liked the coat. And um, but I know that it was kind of loud. Right. And my wife said, why don't you get the coat if you like it? And I said, well, you know, I don't, I don't want to get the coat because I don't I don't want to be too loud. And, you know, she looked at me and she said, you know, why? Why do you do that? If that's what you like, then why? Why are you worried about how it makes other people feel? Why do you avoid getting something that you like for yourself because of how it's going to make other people feel? If that's what you like, get it. And I'm just like, nah, you know, I'm already too loud, you know, with, with my personality. Some people, you know, they have that that thing with them, that sense of awe. You know, Umar, I knew he had that, you know, when he walked into a room, he commanded the attention of the room. And some people have that, you know, and in some ways I have that. And I know that about myself. So I, I try to avoid adding more to myself other than what I already, you know, it's just like you don't want to be too loud. You know what I mean? And so you play yourself down to make other people comfortable with you, you know? And, and I did that for many years of my life. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't always, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I knew how to talk you know, pronouncing, enunciating my words properly. But sometimes when you in the hood and you talk proper, as they say, quote unquote, then, you know, you're seen as, oh, you're talking white or you're talking proper. Right. And so you kind of talk like that. You talk hood, even though that's not your normal way of speaking. But you do it because you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. You know, if you guys understand what I'm saying. You know, you, you do things because you don't want to make other people uncomfortable. So you play yourself small. And uh, I'm going to read you a quote um, 
from, give me one second. in front of so Marian and Marian Williamson um, she had a very famous quote um, that some guys some some of you guys might be uh, familiar with uh, her quote she said you're playing small does not serve the world there's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you you understand like it's so powerful. Your playing small doesn't save the world, and there's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you, right? And so sometimes we we do that. That's a debilitating belief that if I shrink, then I'll make other people, you know, feel comfortable. Number four, another, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually debilitating um, belief is that we tend to overcompensate you know, out of, out of feeling inferior. And I call this the shaitan effect because this is essentially what shaitan did with Adam. Shaitan felt inferior in front of Adam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created him with his own two hands. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved him for last. He was the last of creation. And obviously as Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the artist always saves the best for last. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala al-Fatir, the originator, al-Musawwir, the you know the designer subhanahu wa ta'ala he saved his best for last which means the human being we were the last of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creatures he created the the angels he created the jinn he created animals he created the earth he created everything before he created adam adam and adam's progeny were to be the last of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's creatures and so shaitan when he saw adam's lifeless body laying on the ground before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blew the soul into his body, shaitan used to go in through his mouth and come out of his anal. And shaitan used to, you know, just marvel at the creation of Adam from the very beginning. From the very beginning, he was he was jealous from the very beginning. And then, of course, when Allah blew the soul into Adam's body, then that sent, you know, shaitan's jealousy to a whole nother level. But Shaitan, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asked him, why didn't you prostrate when I commanded you? He said, I'm better than him. You created me from fire. This was the overcompensation out of feeling inferior because being created from fire was not the best quality of Iblis. Prior to being created, you know, prior to Allah commanding him to prostrate to Adam, Iblis was the only jinn that used to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with the angels. That was a status within itself. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam, Iblis was amongst them. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, قُلْنَا لِلْمَلَائِكَ إِسْجُدُوا لِآدَمَ فَسَجَدُوا إِلَّا Iblis." That when, remember when we commanded the angels to prostrate to Adam, they all prostrated with the exception of Iblis. And Iblis was not a, he's, he's not an angel. He's not a fallen angel. He's a jinn. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala clearly says it in the ayah, that he was from amongst the jinn. But what was he doing amongst the angels when Allah commanded the angels to prostrate? That was a fumble. That was a virtue that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him. So you think about it. Why did he go to, I was created from fire, he was created from dirt when he was commanded to prostrate? 
instead of saying, well, you know, I worshiped the law amongst the angels. That was a higher that was a higher quality than being created from fire. But he was looking to overcompensate for the feeling of inferiority. And we do that sometimes. We feel like we are inferior. We walk into a room, we feel inferior. And so we have to over exalt ourselves, overcompensate for the feeling of inferiority. You know. And number five, another spiritually, emotionally, mentally debilitating belief is that we define our worth through external validation instead of internal validation. And so while these beliefs may have served us in the past, <laughs> albeit in a more unhealthy way, many of us have outgrown some of these beliefs. I pray that there are some people here listening who may have held some of these beliefs before that you have evolved beyond these beliefs and you no longer operate by their dictates. But some people continue to hold, continue to hold on to these beliefs because they are safe and they are familiar and because replacing them with other beliefs that are more healthy and aligned with our emotional, mental and spiritual evolution is far more comforting despite how toxic they are. There's some people listening right now out of the five beliefs that I mentioned, there are some people listening right now who still hold those beliefs, still hold on to those beliefs, no matter how toxic they are, no matter how unsettling they make you feel, no matter how, you know, how much of a disservice you are doing to yourself by holding on to these beliefs, but they are comforting. It's what you have believed your entire life. It is how you have operated your entire life. And to replace those beliefs with new beliefs is just far more you know, challenging and discomforting than to just settle with them, right? I remember my, my grandmother who passed away a few years ago. Um, she died at 93 years old and uh, she was a Christian. And I remember having a conversation with my grandmother and I said to her, you know, Grandma, you know that there are contradictions in the Bible, right? You know, and I started mentioning to her some of the contradictions in the Bible. And um, she looked at me and she said, why can't I just die the way that I am? Why can't I just die the way that I am? Meaning, it's too much for me to sift through at this age in my life to change from one religion to the next. It almost reminded me of the last statement of Abu Talib, the uncle of the Prophet Sallallahu when he acknowledged, he wrote a line of poetry and he said that, you know, I, I believe that the best religion is the religion of Muhammad. And if I were going, if I was going to accept any religion, it would be the religion of my, my, my nephew. These were the words of Abu Talib in a line of poetry that he wrote. However, on his deathbed, he said, I can't leave the idols of my forefathers. Abu Jahl and, you know, uh, I believe Al-Walid and, you know, some of the other chiefs of Quraysh walked into the room, you know, playing the devil's advocate in that moment and said, are you going to turn away from the idols of your forefathers? And in that moment, he just he couldn't let it go. Here again, holding on to beliefs that are spiritually debilitating, no matter how toxic they are, because simply changing those beliefs, swapping those beliefs out for beliefs that are more healthy, that are, that are more productive, it's just too complicated. And some people would rather just stay as they are rather than sifting through, you know, 
all of these files and folders of you know false beliefs and ideologies and you know philosophies that have kept them you know where they are you know it's just too difficult however sometimes life forces us to let go let go of some of these beliefs because we find ourselves moving in a direction that gives these beliefs very little bearing on our lives you know, we hold on to certain beliefs, but sometimes circumstances, situations that we are tested with forces us to abandon these beliefs and replace them with beliefs that are more healthy. When Khadija, I want you guys to pay attention to this example. I'm almost done. When Khadija took the Prophet Sallallahu to her cousin, Waraka ibn Nufal, right, who, who was a man who had knowledge of scripture. He had knowledge of you know, uh, the, the Christian Bible, uh, Wallahu alam, whether he was actually Christian, but he had knowledge of scripture, right? And so Khadija felt comfortable taking Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam after hearing about his ordeal, about after hearing about his engagement with Angel Jibreel in the cave of Hira, she took him to someone that she knew that had knowledge of scripture. As Allah says in the Quran, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلِ ذِكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask the people of scripture when you don't know. Ask the people of knowledge, meaning the people of scripture, people who know the books of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you don't know. So Khadija took the Prophet sallallahu to Waraka ibn Nufa and she explained to him the engagement that the Prophet sallallahu had with Angel Jibreel. And Waraka told her and told the Prophet sallallahu that Quraysh would eventually become his adversaries and exile him from his own city. Now I want you to stop for a moment and think about up to this point, Prophet Muhammad was 40 years old up to this point. So that means for the past 40 years, all he has known is Mecca, Quraysh, Beni Hashim, and all of the elders within his community. They had a great deal of respect for him. They loved him. Many has you know come to you know, uh, Abdul Muttalib's aid and, you know, Abu Talib's aid to assist in raising him, seeing as though he lost both of his parents even before he had reached the age of puberty. And so all the Prophet Sallallahu knew was Mecca. All he knew was Quraysh, was his tribe and the other, you know, uh, sub-tribes underneath Quraysh. Bani Abdul Manaf, you know, Bani Makhzum, you know, Bani, Bani Hashim and all of the other tribes that, you know, under the mother tribe of Quraysh. That's all he knew. And so when Waraka told him that Quraysh were going to be his adversaries and they were going to exile him from his own city, these were two concepts that he could not even fathom. The Prophet ﷺ's response to Waraka, he said, awamukhrijiyahum. Are my people really going to put me out of my own city? He couldn't even think that far in advance. Why? Because his comfort was attached to his previous beliefs. And Waraka explained that the message that the Prophet ﷺ was carrying, which was obviously the message of Tawheed, monotheism, was too heavy and too powerful and too transformative of a concept for things to remain as they were. Meaning this concept, this message that you are carrying is not just a message that is just going to, you know, creep into the, the minds of people and people are just going to remain as they are. Tawheed is a transformative concept. 
Meaning the moment you understand, embrace and understand the concept, the deeper concepts embedded within the concept of Tawheed, there's no way that you can remain the same. You cannot remain the same person. And we've seen that with people like Hamza, Ibn Abdul Muttalib, Umar, Ibn Khattab, Mus'ab, Ibn Umayr. Here's a guy who, you know, used to, the Prophet Sallallahu said, I could smell Mus'ab Ibn Umayr from such and such a distance because he used to wear the most expensive fragrances and wear the most expensive clothing. This is a young boy enamored by, you know, the opulence of the world. However, when he converted to Islam, all of those things became secondary. What became primary was pleasing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the point when, when Mus'ab ibn Umair died, he didn't have but one garment to be buried in. And the garment didn't even cover his whole entire body. Think about a guy who goes from wearing the finest silk, the finest clothing, the most expensive fragrance, to dying and not even having but one garment to cover him with. And the garment was so short that if they covered his feet, his head would be exposed. And if they covered his head, his feet would be exposed. This is Mus'ab ibn Umair. Tawheed, transformative concept. But, you know, in today's time, we're not seeing Tawheed, you know, transform people the way that we saw it with the Sahaba. We're not seeing that. You know, just recently, just the other day, somebody shared a clip of a Muslim, you know, who pulls out a gun on another Muslim, you know, and he's recording, you know, and, and I guess shared it on the Internet. And I'm just saying to myself, man, subhanAllah, you know, how, how, you know, how is it that we have people who, you know, claim Islam, you know, your, your garment, your thobe is above your ankles and you have a beard and a prostration mark and you have all of the markers of you know transformation but the condition of your heart is still the same i just received an email i just landed in atlanta and i moment i get off the plane i open up my phone to check my emails and i receive an email from a sister who says that the imam at the islamic school has been molesting you know girls at the school how this is an imam this is a teacher at an islamic school how? Because it's not transforming. We have all of the outward markers of, you know, Tawheed. But when we look at the condition of the hearts and the souls, man, we, we are troubled people. We are troubled souls at the core, at the core of who we are. We're troubled. SubhanAllah, I man. I had a sister in, you know, in anger and in rage, Wallahu a'lam whether she meant it, but, you know, she said, you know, the, the Muslim community is so, you know, dysfunctional, I should probably go back to Christianity. And I'm saying, subhanAllah, just think about one of the Sahaba saying something like that. Like, leaving Islam was never an option for many of them. Leaving Islam was never an option. Umar, radiallahu he said, you know, Imrani min al-jahiliyyah, Omar he said, there's two things from my pre-Islamic time, you know, jahiliya. When I think about these two things, one of them makes me laugh and the other one makes me cry. He said, the one that makes me cry is that in 
pre-Islam, before Islam, we used to bury, we had a horrible tradition of burying our daughters alive. So pre-Islamic Arab tradition that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala highlights in the Quran, and when the baby girl will be asked on the day of judgment for what sin was she committed other than what sin for what sin was she killed for no reason other than the fact that she's a girl female infanticide umar he said that i had a daughter who was born to me and while she is playing in my beard i'm digging a hole in the ground to bury her and he said every time i think about that it makes me cry the scholars, they explain that some scholars say that the narration is not authentically reported on Umar. But we do know that the Arabs, they had this tradition of female infanticide. So whether it was true that for Umar, whether it was true for Umar or not, we know that it was true for many of the Sahaba who converted to Islam. Nonetheless, Umar, he's thinking about things that he did in Jahidiyyah and, you know, it saddens him. Nothing about pre-Islam made the Sahaba feel like, you know, there was some inkling of a desire to go back to it when Islam seems like it's too difficult. Never. He said, as for the thing that makes me laugh, he said, we used to we used to have an idol made out of dates, right? We used to have an idol that we made out of dates and we would worship that idol. And then when we got hungry, we would eat it. You're eating God, right? He said, every time I think about it, it makes me laugh. So the point that I'm making is that Waraka was kind of taking the, the, the blinders off of the eyes of the Prophet at a very, very early stage of his mission. And he said that, you know, your, your people are going to turn on you. Your people are going to turn on you. And the Prophet couldn't fathom. He said, are my people going to turn on me? And he said to him, no one has ever come with a message similar to what you are carrying, except that the people turn on him. And the difference between the Prophet evolution and our own evolution is that we don't usually get a heads up about who's going to turn on us, who's going to turn into an adversary due to our progress. So we hold on to people and or beliefs that are counterproductive to our evolution, right? This is why we keep holding on to people. See, the Prophet ﷺ got a heads up. They're going to turn on you. The moment you start to evolve as a prophet, they're going to turn on you, right? We start to do work on ourselves because we start to love ourselves. We start to respect ourselves. We start to take ourselves a little bit more serious. We start to take our human journey through life a little bit more serious, recognizing that we only get one shot at this. And the moment the light bulb goes off and we start to do work on ourselves, lo and behold, some of the people that we held so dear to us become our adversaries. But we don't get a heads up. We have to figure that out the hard way. Why is this person, you know, so, you know, so counterproductive to my growth and my development? Why does this person always have something negative to say about what I'm doing, you know, in terms of my own growth and development? And this is oftentimes, you know, do we hold on to these people because we are we are afraid. We are afraid that we can't make it without them. We are afraid of disappointing them. And these are what are called unhealthy attachments. And as the saying goes, the root of all suffering 
is attachment. The root of all suffering is attachment, meaning unhealthy attachments. You ever had an attachment to someone, right, that you thought that, you know, you couldn't make it without them? I remember younger, my, my, I have a younger cousin who, alhamdulillah, is Muslim. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guide him, protect him, guide him to all of that, all of that which is good and pleasing to him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, but I remember as teenagers, man, this guy, you know, I, I always looked up to him. You know, he was always very street savvy. You know, he understood the streets better than I did. I kind of got a late start in the streets. You know, this particular cousin, you know, he started off very early, you know, in the streets and he understood the streets very well. And I learned a lot from him, you know, in my years in the streets. And I remember when like we were juveniles and he would, you know, get get locked up and he would go to juvie and you know for however many months he was there i would feel like how am i going to survive out here without him you know I, I i needed i relied on him a lot for you know direction here and direction there and you know he would pull my coat to a lot of things that i was green about and you know i i remember that feeling of emptiness when he would go to jail and i would say to myself like how am i going to make it out here without him you know and I remember years later when I went to the Islamic University and, um, you know, he was still kind of, you know, working and doing his, you know, doing his thing. And I remember him saying, you know, like, you go into the Islamic University, man, I didn't know how I was going to do it without you. You know, the tables had turned, you know. And it was an unhealthy attachment on both ends. It was an unhealthy attachment. You should never feel like you don't know what to do in the absence of this, per this person or that person, right? And this is the example of the Sahaba when the Prophet Sallallahu died. When the Prophet Sallallahu died, Umar ibn Khattab who was waving his sword, he said, Wallahi, the next person who says that the Prophet Sallallahu is dead, I will sever his head from his body. He said, Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu is not dead. Rather, he went to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala like Musa went for 40 days and he will be back. And will punish those who claim he's dead. This was an unhealthy attachment. This was actually the first stage from the different stages of grief. There's five stages of grief. The first stage of grief is, uh, grief is denial. Umar was in denial. A lot of times when, you know, death comes to us, you know, we, we immediately, we deny it. That's the shock of it all and the denial. No, no way, this guy's dead. I was just with him the other day. I was just with her, you know, last week. I just got off the phone with this person. There's the, that's the first stage of grief. And as denial, you deny, you know, that the event is even happening. And this was Umar anhu's response, as well as the response of many of the Sahaba. And many of the Sahaba left Islam Many left Islam. Obviously, it's not safe to call them Sahaba anymore, but they left Islam. And this is when Abu Bakr who got on the minbar and he said, Man kana ya'budu Muhammadan fa inna Muhammadan qad mata. Wa man kana ya'budu allaha fa inna allaha hayyun la yamut. He said that whoever worshiped Muhammad, Muhammad is dead. That's the unhealthy attachment. You are only Muslim because of Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam. That is an unhealthy attachment with a personality. He said, "But whoever worships Allah subhanahu wa taala, Allah is ever living and He never dies." 
That is the healthy attachment with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who has no limitations. Human beings, we have tons of limitations. Our greatest limitation is the fact that we're all going to die. You don't have, you know, <laughs> immortality. Like <laughs> you're, you're going to die. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet You are going to die and so are they. But if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is hayyun la yamut, if he is ever living and never dies, which is a confirmation, which is what is called tawqeed in Arabic, you know, it's an overemphasis because if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is al-hayy, ever living, then that already implies that he doesn't die. But then he follows up right behind it. He is hayy la yamut. La yamut is already included in al-hayy. But Arabs, they, they have a way of structuring their statements and sentences in a way that if you don't understand Arabic, then you don't understand that, you know, it's for emphasis, purposes, right? But that's the healthy attachment. So continuing our attachment to these beliefs and or people, you know, that don't, that don't necessarily serve us is a sign that we don't love ourselves enough to let go of who and what doesn't contribute to our evolution. Self-love is about putting the things that lend to you becoming the best version of yourself first. That's what self-love is about. It's about putting the things and the people that contribute to you becoming the best version of yourself first and not devaluing your experience by unhealthy attachments, you know, to people and or beliefs, you know, that will keep you where you are. Detaching yourself from people who no longer serve you creates a vacuum that you can fulfill with a help with healthier engagements with people who function on a higher frequency with values that align more with your own. Albeit, there are people that we can't just sever ties from completely because of spiritual or biological obligations, but we can cushion our evolution from being interrupted by their toxicity or lack of interest in aspiring to a high sense of self. So I'm going to I'm going to end with five ways to help you, you know, in your evolution of yourself, which is a sign of your self-love, right? Without having to worry about your unhealthy attachments to people. All right, you guys ready? So I'll I'll repeat the last sentence and then i'll go through these five points and then if there's any questions inshallah ta'ala then we'll leave time for that so there are people that we can't just completely sever ties with right um either because of spiritual obligations or biological obligations you know your mother your father your sister your brother your siblings these are biological obligations that we have and then there are spiritual obligations that we have, you know, to you know our brothers and sisters in Islam. The Prophet ﷺ told us that a Muslim should not boycott another Muslim for more than three days, right? You have a maximum of three days to distance yourself from somebody, but never to cut ties from your brother, your sister in Islam. But we can cushion our evolution as we continue to grow and progress, we can cushion that from being interrupted by other people's toxicity 
or due to their lack of interest in aspiring to a higher sense of self. So some of the ways that you can do that. Number one, work on you and allow the universe to respond to your evolution naturally. When you begin working on you, the universe will respond naturally. People will automatically start to feel like you're changing. You ever heard somebody say, you've changed or you're changing. That's fine, that's good. The butterfly says to the cat, the caterpillar says to the butterfly, you've changed. The butterfly says to the caterpillar, well, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to change. The only thing that doesn't grow is something that's dead. We're supposed to grow. So when you start working on you, naturally, people will get out of your way. People who are not, you know, people who are not treading the same path as you will automatically begin to remove themselves from your life. That is the universe responding to your evolution. So work on you and allow the universe to respond naturally. Number two, cut out the middleman. What do I mean by that? Cut out the middleman that stands in between you and achieving your goals by showing up for yourself in ways that others can't. What do I mean? Cut out the middleman that stands in between you and achieving your goals by showing up for yourself in ways that others cannot. What do I mean by that? Most people you can't call at 3 a.m. in the morning, but you can push yourself out of bed and you can get up and call on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala at 3 a.m. in the morning. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is mujib. Mujib He is the responder to the caller when he calls. How many people right now listening have someone that you can call at 3 a.m. in the morning when you are troubled by something, bothered by something, and they're going to pick up and they're going to engage you? Not many. Not many. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is there. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, وَإِذَا سَأَلَكَ عِبَادِي عَنِّي فَإِنِّي قَرِيبٌ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, When my servants ask you about me, then tell them that I am near. I'm near, I'm closer than you think I am. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, although he is above his throne in a manner that befits his majesty, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is not restricted by time, not restricted by place. When we are traveling, what do we say in our dua? Allahumma anta sahibu fi safari wa kharifatu fi ahli. Oh Allah, you are my companion along my journey and you are also watching over my family while I'm gone. How can Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala be in two places at once? Do not restrict Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala due to the limitations of your own intellect. Don't restrict God because your intellect is restricted, because your ability to think beyond the scope and the, you know, the limitations of your own intellectual prowess. Don't restrict God. 
But we say, oh, Allah, you are my companion along my journey. And you are also the watcher over my family while I'm gone. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you can call on him at 3 a.m. in the morning and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will respond. When my servants ask you about me, tell them I am near. I respond to the caller when he calls. And another ayat, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَمَّا يُجِيبُ مُطَّرِ إِذَا دَعَاهُ وَيَكْشِفُ سُوءُ وَيَجْعَلَكُمْ خُرَفَاءَ فِي الْأَرْضِ أَإِلَاهُمْ مَعَ اللَّهِ كَلِيلٌ مَا يَتَذَكَّرُونَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and who is it that responds to the one that is in distress? This is a rhetorical question because no one answers you when you are in distress. People usually only want to show up and celebrate your success when you are successful, but they are nowhere to be found when you are in the thick of it trying to achieve it. That's a fact. People show up to celebrate when you have made it to the top, but they were nowhere around when you were suffering from anxiety, when you were, you know, going through it, when you were in the thick of it, nowhere to be found. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, And who is it that can respond to the one that is in distress? And remove his suffering and make you leaders in the earth? Is there another God besides Allah who can do that? Wallahi, the ayah just gives me chills. Uh, Allah is another God other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who can do that. SubhanAllah. Cut out the middleman. Number three, and this is a big one, and I want you guys to pay attention to this. Learn the less is more philosophy. Learn the philosophy of less is more. What do I mean by that? Learn the philosophy of less is more. The less you share with people, the more you can protect your interests. The less you hang out with people, the more you can accomplish. The less people know about your movements, the more likely you are able to execute them without distractions or interruptions. The less people, the less amount of people you try to bring along with you on your journey, the lighter your load will be and the smaller amount of people you will have to repay once you arrive at your place of success. The less time you spend pouring into others, the more time you can pour into yourself. The less time you spend trying to invest in your personal relationships with others who no longer serve you, the more you can invest in your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala whom you serve. You understand? Less is more. Learn the less is more philosophy. The less you do here, the more you can do over here. The less you talk, the more you can think. You can't talk and think at the same time if you think about it. You can't talk and think at the same time. You're either doing one or the other. The less you talk, the more you can think, ponder, reflect. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Al-Quran. Don't they ponder and reflect on the Quran? But if you're so busy talking, you never have the time to ponder and reflect.
Number four, accept the things about yourself that you cannot change. When you accept the things that you can't change, you don't make excuses for them. You own them. You don't avoid uncomfortable conversations about them due to embarrassment. You give yourself permission to be you holistically. Give yourself to permission to be you. When the subject of divorce come up, you shy away because you've experienced divorce before and it was embarrassment and you want to come off as the perfect individual and the concept or the subject of divorce comes up and you shrink a little bit because you know that you've experienced divorce. You know you've been divorced before. No, man, I will never, I will never allow anybody to shame me for a decision or an incident or something that took place in my life that I grew from. You understand? Don't ever shrink. Own it. It's yours. It's part of your narrative, part of your experience. Give yourself permission to be you holistically. You don't get to take the good parts of me and I got to somehow tuck away or bury the bad parts of me because everybody else is not accepting of that. Man, listen, miss me with that. It's all part of who I am. Give yourself permission to be you holistically. Number five, adopt the philosophy of high order thinking, H-O-T. High order thinking. If you're a teacher, then you know what this means. High order thinking from an Islamic perspective is that everything you do is about achieving the highest results that you can possibly achieve. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, Inna Allah ala kulli shay, That Allah has prescribed perfection in everything that we do. We always aim high. Always aim high. High order thinking thinking, meaning that every single thing that you do is with the goal of achieving the highest result that you can possibly achieve. We don't settle for mediocrity. And number six, and this is just an extra additional fa'idah, and that is be able to distinguish a growth mindset from a fixed mindset within your daily engagements. In your daily movements and engagements, be able to discern whether this thought pattern or this belief or this move was from a fixed mindset or from a growth mindset. You got to have conversations with yourself. They say people who talk to themselves are some of the most intelligent people on the planet. Umar, who used to talk to himself, he said, He said, Oh, son of Khattab, either you are going to fear Allah or Allah is going to punish you. One of the Sahaba overheard Umar as he's talking to himself. He's having this conversation with himself. But you have to, in your daily engagements, you have to be able to discern, you know, did I do this from a fixed mindset or from a growth mindset? Did I say that from a fixed mindset? Or from a growth mindset. As I said before, learn the art of yet. You know, a lot of times we say, oh, I can't do this. No, say, I can't do that yet. That's a growth mindset. When you say, I can't do that, that's a fixed mindset because you're not even going to try. But when you say, I can't do that yet, you are giving yourself now permission to think beyond the parameters or the limitations that you've set for yourself. And this is what I wanted to present. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. I pray that there was some benefit in that.
and we we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for his barakah. The time spent together is always, you know, always a blessed time. Uh, we sit and we remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The Prophet sallallahu wasallam, he said, مَا مِنْ قَوْمٍ يَجْتَمِعُونَ فِي بَيْتٍ مِنْ بُيُوتِ اللَّهِ يَتَدَارَسُونَ الْقُرْآنِ فِيمَا بَيْنَهُمْ إِلَّا نَزَلَتْ عَلَيْهِمُ السَّكِينَةِ وَغَشِيَتْ أُمُرْ رَحْمَةِ وَحَفَّتْهُمُ الْمَلَائِكَةِ وَذَكَرَهُمُ اللَّهُ فِي مِنْ عِنْدَهِ The Prophet Wasallam said, there's no group of people who gather in a house from the houses of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to study the Qur'an, to remember Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, except that the angels encompass, envelop them with their wings. The angels descend upon them, envelop them with their wings. Nazalat alayhim as-sakina, sakina, peace and tranquility is sent down into their hearts. They're covered with the mercy of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ghashiyat umar rahma. They're covered with the mercy of Allah. Wa dhakarahum Allahum fi man inda. And Allah brags about them to the angels. Allah brags about them to the angels. Look at my servants remembering me. None of them have ever even saw me. None of them have ever even heard my voice, yet they believe in me as if they did. Look at my servants. Despite what is going on in the world, despite all of the distractions, they still found time to remember me. SubhanAllah. Allah's bragging about us right now. Uh, so this is what I wanted to present Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Jazakumullahu khayran wa sallallahu ala nabiru Muhammad. وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا وسبحانك ربك رب العزة عما يصفون وسلام على المرسلين والحمد لله رب العالمين so much Allah this was a benefit to bless him and to bless all of us all of us Sheikh Shadid continues to take time away from his family he's traveling so there's certain mercies that travelers have they don't even have to make the whole salat so he came and he gave us his lecture um, because of his love that he has for this only and the gira that he has for him, mashallah We'll take some questions, and before I open up the hand raising, because I know there's a lot of new people on this app, and a lot of people don't know exactly the tone of myself and inside of this room. You are coming to the stage to speak to somebody that's like you don't meet every day. This man has dedicated his life to this religion. He's amongst the scholars of Al-Islam. So if you come in to ask a question, Make sure you are careful in what you say and that you are showing the respect out of the fear of Allah and out of the fear that Allah told us that we should have for our scholars and our teachers and our leaders. The other thing I wanted to say to you, perhaps there's somebody in this room that is studying or have studied and they may want to say something. The lecture has already been given. The lecture has already been given. So if you was to come to the stage, we don't want to hear if you want to add on to something. The lecture's already been given. We came here to to um, listen to Sheikh Shadid. Sheikh Shadid, as we um uh, as we uh, have the hand raising up, please tell us what's going on this weekend in Atlanta and um and any links that you have. You know they got a thing on here now. We can put the links above your head now. But um, tell us what's going. On.